This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. Once I got close to ground effect, slowly pull the power back and a buzzer starts to go off. And in my mind, I'm thinking, man, I'm hearing that stall warning horn. This is gonna be a great landing. Glad we got this airplane down. Never did it cross my mind that that was actually a buzzer that's there and the throttle stops for when the gear is knocked down. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. And a quick note about today's episode, due to COVID-19, I recorded this interview from my home and the audio quality will be slightly different than what you're used to. In today's episode, I'm happy to introduce John Gandy. People will recognize John's voice if they've called into the AOPA Pilot Information Center. John is one of our pilot representatives from the PIC, a wealth of knowledge he brings. He's a commercial, IFR rated, single engine, multi-engine pilot, He's got over 600 hours flight time, and the story he's gonna share with us today comes from his time flying a PA-31 Piper Navajo when he experienced an engine issue that distracted him and his problems got a little more complicated. So here's my conversation with John Gandy. John, thank you for joining us and thank you for your work in the PIC. We definitely appreciate the opportunity to do both, share the story and be able to help pilots when they call in. Great. So uh, you uh, listened to the podcast and you've also given us some great ideas. And as people call in, have pointed us to uh, guests that we've had on the show before. So thanks for your background contributions to the There I Was podcast. And then we were talking one time and you mentioned your story that would be of interest to our listeners. So if you don't mind, set the scene for us, if you will. What kind of flight were you on and, uh, and what happened? So the PA-31 job, I think you mentioned, was aerial pictometry. And that is all day VFR part 91 work. And I had had about 100 hours in the aircraft already at the time. And this was a flight from Martinsburg, uh, MRB, down to the Charleston Yeager area to do photos of coal stockpiles. And this was something that was done about every month for us. So not a huge long flight, but still a long cross country. And we had gotten up to cruise, about 10,500 feet on the way outbound. And ended up noticing what I thought was a crosswind. So I reached down, trimmed rudders a little bit, kept on trucking. I noticed the heading was just a little bit farther off, trimmed again, kept on trucking. 
as I started to notice more and more of this crosswind, I thought that's that's just way too much of a crosswind. That's that's not correct. So I picked up the scan, which was my first issue. If I had a more complete one, I probably would have noticed this before. Um, but something was a mismatch with the manifold pressures. There was about a two-inch difference, which can happen, but I wasn't paying attention enough to address that and make adjustments to it. So that was the first indication that something was a little bit of a miss with the flight. It was at that point that I decided to start taking a look at what options I had around me as far as airports to get to in case I did find a maintenance issue. So while glancing at sectionals to take a look at what was nearby, I also started looking at the idea of running through some troubleshooting for the engines and seeing what was going on. And somewhere in my head, I got the idea to pull power in that engine just a little bit, and power immediately came down. And when I put power back to the engine to see what it would do, it very, very slowly brought the manifold pressures back up. Uh, So at that point, my flight is over for the day. Uh, I need to go ahead and put the airplane down and have somebody find out what's going on with that. So looking even further into uh, the sectionals, and at that point, we were using electronic flight bags. Uh, We could drill into the airports and find out what services were available. And really, nothing with a maintenance shop that I figured could actually take care of that and get us back in the air, whether it be that day in the next two days or so, uh, so that we can get back up to the job, come home. So Charleston Yeager was the option for us. That was a large enough field that I knew would have a maintenance shop to be able to take care of it uh, out that way in West Virginia. There's really not much in the way of options for you. So next thing that kind of led to the issue is that I did not at that point consider declaring an emergency for that power or partial power loss. Looking back, definitely should have, would have made things a lot easier for me. But because I had power, it was stable. All of the other engine instruments were green. Nothing was deteriorating. But the performance of the engine uh, decided to maintain that power and keep it for the duration of the flight. And John, where were you in terms of your in-route navigation? So were you about halfway there? You said you were at cruise and had been there for a bit. Were you about halfway to uh, Charleston at this point? Yeah, a little over halfway, about 60, 80 miles before getting to Charleston. Okay, so you make the determination, all right, you've got some issue with your engine, and it's definitely a concern, but you decide that you've got other airports you could land at, but now you're looking at the possibility of being stranded at those airports, where as long as your engine is making good enough power and you didn't feel like it was critical enough at this stage, you make the determination to optimize your choice and continue on to your destination where you know you can get maintenance help. Absolutely. So there are no other indications, like uh, no mismatch EDTs or anything like that, no abnormal sounds that I'm hearing. So I figure aircraft sounds solid, consistent, just a low manifold pressure. Uh, So we'll keep holding the power that we had set. And you say we, but you're single pilot at this point, right? (laughs) Yes, I do have one other person on board who I'm responsible for. And with this uh, gentleman sitting all the way in the back manning the camera. Uh, So I would ping him every once in a while, run things by him. Some of the people who were working there were pilots, and the gentleman had some experience in airplanes as well. So it's not like we were totally alone. Got it. still want to run as a crew and use some crew resource management if possible. So, yeah, definitely a we in the airplane. At this stage, though, you're relatively new to this operation, right? So about how many hours had you had in the uh, Navajo, and about how many did you have in, in twins, light twins at this point? So in the Navajo at the time, close to about 100 hours Okay. in that airframe. Before getting the job, uh, somewhere close to about 50. 
I was a multi-total. Got it. So you're still a relatively new twin pilot going into this thing. And uh, I missed it. Did you say it was day VMC or were you, or were you at nighttime or what? Yep, day VMC. Day VMC. All under okay. VFR. Weather was not an issue for you through the, through the ordeal? Oh, absolutely not. So weather's fine. Winds aren't an issue. Uh, you've got plenty enough fuel. So it's just a matter of assessing this engine. So like any anomaly, right, is trying to figure out, let me understand my problem and then take the best course of action. And at that point in my mind, I, I had already given up on the idea of going and doing this job. So the, the sole focus was finding a place to put down and doing that safely. At least that's what was in my head at the time. Got it. Okay. So continuing on from that point, as we've already decided to go to Charleston, uh, like I mentioned, totally should have uh, declared an emergency. Uh, even though I didn't, I did let ATC know uh, that we had that partial power loss and that I, I could reduce power. It was a little difficult to get it back. Uh, that was it. They asked if I wanted to declare. I declined, and we've heard similar stories of pilots doing that and it not turning out well, but that didn't pop into my head at the time. I figured I had power, aircraft's working. We'll just keep on moving. I think we'll get to this, but in hindsight, what you're thinking of what we've learned is there really is no downside to declaring an emergency at that point. You may get added help. You may get added priority. The whole notion of paperwork has been exaggerated, really. It turns out that's really not the case. And so, as we have all learned through the years, there really is no downside in declaring an emergency at that point. But like a lot of us were at that time, uh, you make the decision not to, and so you press forward. So, again, about 80 miles away, and we're locked into going to Charleston and communicating with air traffic to do that. As we get closer to the airport, I switch over to tower, and we're hearing what traffic is there. And I notice I'm getting routed behind an Embraer, an ERJ, uh, which, of course, is much bigger aircraft. Uh, not much like it would find much larger aircraft. It's not a 777 or uh, A3 or something like that, uh, but still large enough that from my size of aircraft, wake turbulence is a concern. So with the partial power that I knew I couldn't get back if I removed it and not declaring the emergency, flying with that engine, uh, now I have to worry about wake turbulence, uh, which is something we all fly with, so it's not too out in left field to, to deal with that. Um, but because I couldn't get power back easily, I decided I needed to reduce it so that I can still get a descent rate but maintain a, a glide path above uh, that aircraft. And so partial power getting to the airport, uh, reduced power uh, getting down to the runway, and getting just over the runway, I, I held enough power uh, that we can fly the airplane down to a landing. And once I got close to ground effect, slowly pull the power back. I didn't want to abruptly do that. And as I did, of course, airspeed slows down a little bit. And uh, a buzzer starts to go off and pulling the power all the way off uh, to actually get down the landing. And in my mind, I'm thinking, man, I'm hearing that stall warning horn. This is going to be a great landing. Glad we got this airplane down. And never did it cross my mind that that, that was actually a buzzer that's there in the throttle stops uh, for when the gear is not down. Oh. And, and that ended up being the case. So while we were running all of the other checklists uh, through a flow, and we never backed that up by actually visually going over the checklist, and we missed gear. But we did not miss the runway. So we ended up scraping the tail tie down, and eventually the belly got settled. But right before then, though, I thought when the tail tie-down started to strike, it, it clicked exactly what was going on. And I thought, man, 
it's just a tail tied out. If I can get a little bit of power back into the airplane and go around and do this again. But in that moment, I also thought that power is not going to come back up on the faulty engine very easily. Uh, if it didn't, that could have asymmetrical thrust. And then I have that issue to deal with while trying to climb out on a bad engine. So do I deal with that problem or do I just eat this gear up and walk away from it? All of that is going through your mind in the moment. When you realize, oh, my gear's up, there's the tail scrape. And so what you just outlined, all of that, John, was going through your mind? Yep. In about a second, uh, about a solid second, those were my thoughts. And I figured, nope, just leave it there. We'll settle it down and we'll deal with it. And as many have said before, softest landing, uh, smoothest landing I've ever felt. In fact, if if you know anything about the PA-31s, the nacelles have uh, air scoops under them. There was no damage on those. So it was like an extremely flat landing. The, the belly of the aircraft flat, too. So that, that part was handled very, very well. We were able to get out of the airplane and walk away from it quite quickly and, and safely. But definitely a little bruised ego there. A little hurt motions over. We were getting to that point and letting that happen. But we walked away. I have heard that uh, so many times on uh, inadvertent gear up landings where it usually occurs, and I just got back from meeting with some insurance companies, by the way, and probably their largest loss in terms of the number of incidents they have plus the amount per incident is from gear up landings. Oftentimes in the inadvertent gear up landings, it's some kind of distraction that gets pilots out of their normal routine is where it starts. And in your case, that distraction started with the engine that wasn't operating properly and then your concern about the Embraer on, on short final and, and your uh, wake turbulence concern. Yeah, and in fact, as embarrassed as I was, and my chief pilot and you know, the company were trying to ease my fears by saying the insurance agent told them they consider that there are pilots who have geared up and pilots who will. That's just the nature of their business. And as we mentioned before, there are some things that we could have done to alleviate those abnormal procedures to make the circumstance more normal, something that I have trained before. All pilots and multi-engine aircraft have trained for to be able to deal with, as opposed to trying to deal with this abnormal circumstance. So let's walk that back again, John. Such an interesting scenario that turned out quite different than what you were concerned about. So you deal very effectively with a problem that you were concerned about making some judgment decisions along the way uh, to divert or not divert, continue the path based on how your engine was operating. And, you know, the, the adage that we love to live by is any kind of abnormal situation, maintain aircraft control, analyze the situation and take proper action. But it always starts with maintain aircraft control. You're doing that well. You're coming down. Uh, you make your decision to continue into, uh, into Charleston. And then, of course, the distraction happens. So let's walk that back and talk about, you mentioned you had some thoughts on dealing with the engine anomaly and your cross-check and that sort of thing. Can we talk about some of your lessons learned in the first part of the flight? Oh, absolutely. So knowing that I could not get power back on that engine, I had to nurse it. It was always a consideration from every moment or for every moment moving forward in that flight that I had to do something special with that engine. Had I just shut that engine down and caged it, it would have been a non-issue. At that point, it would have been a single-engine approach, which we've trained for day in, day out uh, when you're learning to fly. It would have been more normal to fly with that engine shut down than it would have been for me to try and use it or nurse it all the way to the runway. So looking back, 
definitely in the approach phase at very least, at the latest, uh, I would have gone ahead and shut that thing down. That's interesting because that, that brings up a really good discussion point. There are a few really good discussion points among pilots. You know, one is if you fly tailwheels, uh, wheel landing versus three-point, you know, religious wars break out over those kind of things. And one of them is this issue that you're talking about. You've got an engine that at least is providing you some thrust. Do you make the decision to shut that down so you're dealing with a very sort of black and white situation, single engine versus kind of partial engine? Or do you keep it operating so it's providing you some thrust if you need it. Tell me why you're thinking as you look back on it, you would shut it down. Well, again, we're trained to do it. We're trained to deal with flying single engine in a multi-engine aircraft. So it's far more familiar to just go through the motion, so to speak, of leaning on the good engine and managing flight that way. We can think that way. We're trained to do it as opposed to thinking, man, I'll, I'll have to manage these throttles. I'll have to be careful of pulling too much power back. Um, is this an opportunity where I can pull back or do I need to maintain a little bit more power? So, like We're starting to add all of these other questions, these other things that we need to think about while dealing with the issue. So as opposed to giving us other questions that we have to process through, put ourselves in a mode that we're familiar with to begin with, uh, even if we aren't you know, flying every day engine out. It's something, again, we're trained for, we're familiar with that, Make the situation something that you are familiar with. And in that way, it's easier to deal with uh, than having to think alternatively outside of your normal procedures. That's definitely a line of thought. It's just like in a single-engine airplane. A lot of times we've heard pilots talk about that it's actually more difficult to deal with a partial-engine failure than a total-engine failure, even in a single-engine airplane, because total-engine failure, we train to it all the time. We've thought through it. Partial engine failure, you're kind of moving in and out. I think I got it. I think I don't. And a little bit of power, but not enough power. And so you get in this gray area. And so you're suggesting the same kind of thought process is put the airplane in an environment that you've trained for. It's not optimum, but you're trained to do it. You know how to operate it. As opposed to this kind of quasi-engine running, you haven't really dealt with that before. But I can also see the other side of that equation, which is all right, the engine's providing me some thrust so I can reduce the power, maybe even just pull it back to idle and just keep it running. So it's there if I need it. What, what about that thought process? Well, as I mentioned before, it, I decided to keep it because it was working. I had made adjustments to the good engine so we had you know, equal thrust, equal manifold pressure and pulling me forward. And in cruise flight, I don't see any problem with that. That kept me from having asymmetrical thrust, kept me from having to adjust rudder, which in and of itself, that, that's going to be the abnormal circumstance there. So by pulling power on the good engine, I was able to normalize the circumstance for cruise. Uh, but as I mentioned before, probably getting close to the approach phase where I'd have to start making some adjustments to power, frequent adjustments to power, then it would become an issue. I would then go ahead and cage that engine, keeping it to get you there, Absolutely. I don't see anything that's, that's wrong with that, uh, especially if you can, again, normalize the circumstance to something that you're used to dealing with. But outside of that, when you when you start getting to a place where it's more work to do that, uh, I'd say just go ahead and get rid of the problem. Hey, listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the general aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. 
Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. You also mentioned coming over earlier, John, that you had thought about, you know, that I thought it was interesting that your very first indication of that engine problem was you thought, hmm, there's a little more crosswind up here than I thought, so you trim it. Uh, hmm, a little more crosswind, and you trim it. And then at some point you say, okay, all right, this isn't right. So talk through us about that process, too, and any of the lessons learned you have coming out of that. In cruise, I guess it's very easy to get to the point where you, you sit back and wait the flight out, especially if it's a flight you know, like this run uh, that we've done several times before. And we're very used to it, and you expect everything to go the same way that it always has. If pre-flight's great, if your run-up was great, the aircraft's performing normally in climb, when you settle it into cruise and everything's humming along nicely, very easy to get complacent in your scan and you make sure temps might be running fine, but occasionally you might skip an instrument or two. You might get a cursory scan going on in cruise or you might take a longer interval before you actually start going through a complete scan. And that's what happened in that circumstance. So for me, the the lesson I take away from that one is treat every moment that you're operating the aircraft as one where you're going to do everything completely and don't do anything differently in one area that you wouldn't when it comes to checking on the airplane and making sure everything's okay. Even as a private pilot, a general aviation pilot, uh, one of the things I've picked up since then is that we're all professionals or we should at least be attempting to fly the airplane as if we were. Uh, So we should treat everything that we do to do it as a professional. We're going to do it on that level. Don't skip, don't cut corners, uh, do everything the same way at the same time, all the time, and that'll get you through. Yeah, that's good advice. And I'm thinking through, you're still, at this time in your career, you're still relatively young in your career in terms of your, you've only got 150 hours in, in light twins. So you're, you're still sort of gaining your, your experience level. And the whole notion that when something goes wrong or something's not quite right, to step back and look at the entire picture, you know, so you're thinking, eh, this isn't quite right. I need a little crosswind correction trim. And then to think, all right, now hang on a second. Let me think about that a little bit, right? And force yourself into that deeper level of thinking. And it's something that we've learned in the Air Safety Institute that this notion of engaging our system two level thinking in just about all circumstances, uh, is really important for us in aviation. Yeah, and I, I think kind of to combine those two points, if if I had kept the scan solid, I would have been able to pick up on that loss of manifold pressure a, a lot sooner and to be able to piece that together uh, with the idea that um, I have to trim rudder, uh, asymmetrical thrust probably would have popped into my head as what's going on first instead of having to just trim, just trim, just trim, and then having this light bulb moment go off to where I need to start probing a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Now let's talk about the inadvertent gear up part of that, John, and and what your lessons learned were there. Clearly, it came from distraction, distraction from your engine that we talked about, distraction from being worried about the Embraer on short final and wake turbulence there. Can you walk us through what were some of your lessons learned from the uh, inadvertent gear up? Declare the emergency. As you mentioned before, there's there's no great mountain of paperwork to have to deal with. Uh, you, you don't avoid it by not declaring an emergency. If anything, there's far more paperwork to do if you don't. 
in my case, I didn't have the benefit of coming home, filling out a NASA report and waiting for the FAA to call while I thought about what happened. Charleston Yeager actually has a physio on the field, so they just walked on over. And that was very, very stressful to have to deal with that. And it was going to happen either way. But declaring the emergency would have, at the very least, given me a clear path on approach and eliminated the possibility of having this much larger aircraft landing in front of me. So wake turbulence more than likely would have been taken right off the table. And at that point, I would have had a, a normal glide path. And that could have put me in a position where I would have been more cognizant of power setting uh, and being able to do everything more rote, basically, more through the flow by the checklist. Everything would have, again, been more normal. The idea is from that, normalize that situation, remove distractions as much as you can, uh, keep your job simple. And the idea of declaring the emergency in that circumstance definitely would have done that. You've made that point a couple times a day, John, that seems so important is get yourself back into your normal cadence and your normal flow. Whatever distractions or anomalies that occur, deal with them, and then as best you can work back into that normal cadence and normal flow. And that's also the idea behind using the checklist. That mm-hmm. should be part of every pilot's normal flow, which is also something we got away from on that flight. Had I? would not have been an issue if I stuck to that checklist, if I always use that. So that's another thing about keeping your flights normal or as normal as you can. Stick to checklists. That's what they're there for. It will save your life. And especially in times of distress or especially when things go abnormally, right? Whenever you have an abnormal situation, that is in particular the time where you should stress your checklist. It's the time when you don't want to use it because you think to yourself, I'm too busy, I got all this stuff to work. But it's really the time when you need it the most to verify that through all this other stuff that distracted your attention, you didn't move away from the basics. And to be honest, if you're low in altitude, I mean, less than a thousand feet and you're limited in options, probably not the time to go reach for a card or, or a book to flip through pages. Um, but for me, you know, six, 4,000 feet you know, as you're in an approach phase, and there's at least 30 seconds. And that's enough time for you to grab a checklist, look over a section, and make sure that you have everything done. So there's, there's usually some time there for you to breathe, even if it is for just a quick moment to verify that you have what you need taken care of. And I'm curious, did you ever consider calling your passenger up, who was an experienced photographer, had been on a lot of these flights with your company, and asking him to sit right seat and back you up on checklists or any anything like that that you might reconsider? You know, that would have been a good idea. Uh, as part of crew resource management, to have somebody else up there that can go through that. Uh, that way I wouldn't have to look through it myself, uh, have extra workload up front. I could just listen and run through that. So that would have been a benefit, definitely. And, you know, I could see you'd have to think very carefully about that. There's some passengers where you wouldn't want to do that. If they're not familiar with aviation, it would cause you more distraction than not, right? So you'd, that would be a bad idea. But depending on who that is and whether or not you make the assessment that they can actually be a help to you, then something to consider. In the case of someone who doesn't have the aviation experience, having them there with you, as you said, could be another distraction that's there. But if they can follow some basic rules and basic instructions, such as don't touch anything, just read this and go through the list, I can definitely see that being a benefit. And in that circumstance, for me, especially with someone who had exposure as well, that would have helped. 
Yeah, something for us all to think about is prepare for that day by utilizing your family and your routine passengers, you know, to read checklists and do things in normal circumstances so that if the unusual circumstance arises, it's more of a routine. Indeed. Another thing, John, I think we should really compliment you on is your reaction. Once you realized your gear was up and you kind of felt that tail scraping, there has been several instances where pilots attempted go-arounds in those circumstances and they didn't go very well. So I compliment you on the very quick decision to realize your gut reaction wanting to get out of that situation and then realizing, no, I'm committed. My best option now is to just accept this and deal with it. I commend you on that decision. It could not have been an easy one in the moment. Yeah, I definitely did not want to have to make that call back to the boss to say that and put that plane down. But there could have been worse news. And I think ultimately, out of everything that could have been done, just committing to making that landing happen was it. I don't want to make it, the job any more difficult than what it needed to be. I didn't want to have to deal with extra problems. I was there. We were right there by the runway. Could have been an easy landing if I just went straight forward and did that. At least that's what I was thinking in my head. So why not just go ahead and put the airplane down and finish this? Let's just call it a day here. Well, John, what an interesting story. Started out with an engine anomaly and then ends up with an inverted gear up landing. You, a relatively junior pilot at the time, really just getting settled into flying twins and your commercial ticket. Tell us what happened to you after that. You had to deal with the FAA, I'm sure, and the NTSB and all those. Any lessons learned that came out of that very quickly? Yeah, I've, I've noticed uh, through that, and again, talking to a lot of members who give a call in some similar issues, the FAA is really concerned with persons who are either willfully disregarding the regulations or you know, really show uh, that they aren't on top of being an airman in the airplane. So in dealing with the FAA, uh, I've learned that a good explanation of the circumstances that led up to the issue is really all that they want. If you can give an educated answer or an account of the circumstance, your time dealing with the FAA will not be nearly as difficult as most people think that it would be. So there was a brief interview there. I did have to handwrite a statement for the gentleman to take. Uh, a little while later, uh, that inspector, as well as another person from the FAA, uh, called again, and I did have to recount the issue, even though I'd already done it once and given a written statement. But they contacted me back and said that they would do remedial training, uh, which in the scope of what they could do if a person were regularly disregarding regulations or forgetful or negligent, that's what you want. Remedial training, perfect. I'll take that. Help me understand my multi-engine flying a little bit better. Uh, we'll take that improvement, the lessons learned, and we'll move forward from that. But that's the other part of the coin I would say is people shouldn't fear the FAA in the process. And there's a lot to learn from it if you allow yourself to be educated through it. That has been my observation as well with the FAA is what they're really looking for is better, safer operations overall. They recognize that flying is a complex activity, that people make honest mistakes, and they're interested in, in helping us correct that. That's been my observation of working with the FAA for uh, the last several years, and this move to a compliance program has really benefited the entire GA uh, flying culture in my mind. I'd say it's benefited me in that respect. So the, the remedial training wasn't a whole lot, and I think the circumstance, and definitely being able to walk away from the circumstance relatively unscathed, did a lot 
to teach me along with that remedial training uh, how important it is to stay focused on checklists and keep those procedures, especially emergency procedures, well in mind and make sure that you're approaching your aviation uh, with a professional mindset every time you do it and to be very consistent. Great. Well, any other lessons learned that you can think of that we haven't covered today, John? None that rise to the top of my mind right now. Those are the very big major ones. And again, if if any one of those steps or any one of those points that I brought out uh, had been addressed even a little bit differently, uh, circumstance probably would have come out better. So in training, we talked about this, this error chain, things that kind of multiply along the way or link together to lead to an incident or accident. And that at any given point, we have the ability to break it. If we do take a step back, reevaluate the circumstance and make sure that we're, we're staying on top of doing what it is we've been trained to do. So if anything, I would advise anyone who's in an emergency or experiencing anything to do exactly that. If you have even a quick second, take a deep breath, think about where you are, what needs to be done. And as we say, just fly the airplane and get back to normalizing the circumstance and doing what you, you typically would do, but just do what you have to to meet the, meet the emergency. Well, John, thanks so much for sharing your story with us, and thanks for the work you do in the PIC. We get a lot of feedback from members on how much they enjoy engaging with you, and, and it's one of the great benefits of AOPA membership. All righty, sir. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity again, and you guys take care. So to help us with this discussion of an engine-producing partial power, I reached out to my friend and colleague, Doug Rosendahl. Doug's got a wealth of experience flying all kinds of different airplanes. He's mostly known as a warbird pilot, but not just a pilot. He's a DPE and a specialty DPE, meaning he can give check rides in all kinds of different airplanes, including experimental and warbirds. He's got about 10,000 GA hours. He's got a lot of time flying DC-3s and in twin beaches as well. Doug is also the chairman of the board for the Commemorative Air Force. He's the former chief of standardization and evaluation for the uh, CAF, and he was also the safety chairman for the International Council of Air Shows. So he brings a wealth of experience in all kinds of flying, particularly in twin engine flying. And Doug, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. You know, one of the challenges with flying light twins is that a lot of them don't have the uh, single engine performance to actually maintain altitude on one engine. So there is often some desire, you know, to keep the engine running. For me, a lot of this boils down to the importance of what I call the drill. And the drill is something that I teach to my students, which I pound into their head at the same place in their brain where Mary had a little lamb lives. Because when a pilot experiences an engine failure, you know, especially in difficult conditions, maybe it's at night, hard IFR, uh, maybe there's some smoke or fire uh, associated with that. They take a big shot of adrenaline, and their brain, uh, they revert to what I call their reptilian brain. And we don't rise to the occasion when that happens. We sink to the level of our most recent recurrent training. And the recurrent training that I preach is what I call the, or many have called the drill. And that is, and it needs to be repeated all the time. You need to have this, as I said, buried in your brain. And it's uh, pitch for blue line, mixtures, props, throttles, flap set, gear up, identify and slap your leg, verify and pull the throttle back, feather, mixture, engine failure checklist when we have time. 
And so the step in a partial situation or where there's any ambiguity is that verify step. As you slowly and deliberately pull that throttle back, you need to pay attention to what happens. If it gets quiet, then you've maybe identified the wrong engine and you need to push that throttle back forward. And that's the reason why we do the drill in increasing order of irrevocability. The first thing you do is, after you've cleaned up the airplane, is slap your leg. If you slap your leg and it's the one you're pushing on, you know, you slap the other leg. There's no harm, no foul. Okay, if you slap your right leg and then you go over and you pull back on the right throttle and nothing changes, you have pretty good assurance that, first of all, that you've selected, identified, and verified the correct engine. And secondly, you've verified that it's not making any power. So if you pull that throttle back and you lose performance, you notice that it takes more rudder to keep the airplane going straight, that tells you that you have a partial power situation. Then the question becomes, will this airplane maintain altitude or do I have enough energy, total energy, relative to a spot on the ground, which is a point of intended landing, is how far you are from it and how much altitude you have. And so if the airplane won't maintain altitude and you're halfway between Goose Bay and Greenland, like I was this summer in a DC-3, and now the DC-3 would maintain altitude, but let's say we were way heavy and it wouldn't maintain altitude. If I pull that throttle back and feather it, knowing it won't maintain altitude, I've just bought myself a ticket into the drink. So in that case, the answer is very obvious. If the engine's making power and I need the power, I'm going to keep it. But if I'm flying a B-55 Baron with half tanks of gas and two people in it, I've got a coal mill Baron with 550s on it, and that airplane will fly 145, 150 knots on one engine all day long at gross weight. And so if there's anything wrong with that engine, I'm going to feather it because it might get more expensive or the engine that partially failed could catastrophically fail and put a uh, piston out through the, the crankcase and start a fire. So it's, there's really a lot of things to consider. But I think the real thing that I think about is, or what I see, you know, given check rides, is when people go to actually feather that engine, I see a lot of people, they start shaking. We're 5,000 feet above an airport that's perfectly suitable for landing on a VFR day, and I'm sitting in the right seat having brought home numerous airplanes with one engine, you know, where it failed and shut down engines literally hundreds of times given check rides and do it all the time, and they're shaking. So their comfort level or their training is keeping them from doing what I've told them on the check ride we have to do is feather the engine, and they're still reticent to do that. So there's just so many different things to talk about. But if you need the power to get to where you've got to go, then certainly if it's available, you're going to use it. If you don't need the power and you don't know why the engine's failed, I'm going to lean towards feathering it. Whether we feather it or whether it's partial power, you need to say, okay, I know what I've got. Now eliminate all the extraneous stuff and make the rest of the flight as normal as possible. And then I think you said that he was distracted by the tower uh, cleared another airplane into the pattern or ahead of him. And, and that's a situation where never be afraid to declare an emergency. You know, I've declared emergency numerous times. And if he didn't declare an emergency, if he had, that may have precluded the tower from putting another airplane ahead of him. 
And you're exactly right, Doug. That was one of his lessons learned as well as he thought through it was if he would have declared an emergency, there would have been really no harm in doing so. And they would have certainly given him priority over the traffic they evacuated in front of him, which ended up causing some level of distraction. Right. And people say, well, I don't want to declare an emergency because then I'm going to have to deal with paperwork. Well, in this day and age, if you land at the airport with an engine feathered, the uh, tower is going to notify the FISDO. If you declare an emergency, the tower is going to notify the FISDO. In most cases, depending on what the circumstances surrounding it are, that's going to mean you're going to get a call from the FISDO and they're going to say, what happened? Why did the engine fail? They may call the mechanic to find out why the engine failed. But either way, if you land one engine at a uh, tower-controlled airport, uh, somebody's going to call the FISDO. They have to report that. And so either way, you're going to talk to the FISDO. So there's no, or it's likely that you're going to talk to the FISDO. So there's no downside ever in declaring an emergency. You know, single pilot resource management says reach out to all the resources that you have at your disposal. And one of those is declaring an emergency so that you get the undivided attention of ATC. And if ATC asks you to do something that you're unwilling or even slightly uncomfortable doing, there's a magic word in aviation that pilots should learn and use, and that is unable. When you say unable, you change it from being your problem to their problem. They've got to figure out a different way to solve the problem. In a light twin with one engine feathered, and they say go around, say unable, land on the taxiway, land on the grass, do whatever you have to do. But for God's sakes, don't let ATC fly your airplane. Great advice from somebody who's got a lot of experience in flying twin engines on one engine and twin engines on both engines. Doug, I knew you'd have some interesting advice for our listeners, and I thank you so much for your time. Well, it's great to be here and appreciate what you do at the AOPA Safety Foundation. So that was some great insight from Doug. And in addition to his input, I thought I'd also reach out to one of the most experienced pilots that I know of, Ralph Waldo Anderson. He's flown out of the Midwest for decades. He's got over 30,000 hours flying time, all of that in general aviation. He's a former instructor with the University of Minnesota. He's got an ATP rating, single engine land, multi-engine land, single engine C, multi-engine C, He's a former DPE, and notably, he's been the instructor in DPE for the president and CEO of AOPA, Mark Baker. And that's how I met Waldo earlier this year. Mark introduced me to Waldo, and I went down to take some Baron training with him in Lakeland, Florida. So I brought Waldo up to speed with John Gandy's situation, and here's what Waldo had to say. Well, as long as he's got the uh, partial engine, he's going to have a constant distraction. He's always going to be worried about it. When is it going to quit? And et cetera. And depending on the scenario, was he, you know, um, losing the uh, oil pressure or the, what was the, it only would make partial power and he don't know why. Obviously, if it kept running, he had, he had enough fuel. But he's got the distraction there that he's always going to worry about. Whereas if he would have shut it down, personally, I think I would have shut it down. And then I'd be done with the distraction if I was at 10,000 feet. I certainly, with that airplane, will be able to have a slow descent, very slow descent. And it probably, just guessing on the Navajo, probably hold pretty good to six, 8,000 feet and hold altitude on one engine. Now, how about the other side of that? Because I could see 
wanting to keep the engine running for redundancy, for even a little bit of excess thrust if you needed that. As you and I discussed during the Baron training that you gave me, that single engine go around can be a very dicey situation for light twins. What do you think about keeping it running so that you have a little bit of excess thrust if you need it? You've got the redundancy for your systems. Would you consider that at all? No, I would plan the land. At least advise ATC and say, hey, I'm single engine. And uh, I think they would have given them priority if he was single engine. Yeah, funny you mentioned that. Another one of his lessons learned was he did not declare an emergency. And he says, you know, in hindsight, I should have just declared an emergency. I would have gotten a priority, probably got in in front of that Embraer, or they would have moved the Embraer around him, which ended up being another distraction for him. Yeah. First, he had his airplane that he was worried about, and then thinking about, well, okay, now they turn him away from the airport or something to let somebody else in that's faster, and they still got that distraction about that engine. Whereas if he'd have had that single engine and advise him, say, hey, I'm shutting, I've lost my engine, I'm shutting it down, I'll be coming in single engine. So all in all, with you know weighing the pros and cons of the situation, and that's what we enjoy about these podcasts and these scenarios, uh, Waldo, is I know that you can appreciate this, you're a long time in GA and involved in, in training, is that pilots can sit through and think about this situation and what they would do if they're ever faced with this or a similar situation so that while we're sitting here at zero knots and one G, we can kind of make decisions in advance, if you will, and then it's just a matter of executing them. Yeah, it's no big deal. I mean, if you've got it shut down and you're descending low power, obviously the big concern is I don't really like to go around single engine and I advise the tower of you know, of that that I'm single engine so they know and they're not going to have anybody in your way and, and et cetera. And especially in his case, day VMC conditions, uh, winds weren't a big factor, plenty of fuel. So the likelihood of a go around was pretty low. And so shutting that engine down to your point, and I think what you're helping us understand is shut the engine down to just eliminate the distraction of a partially running engine and put yourself in a situation that if you're a twin engine pilot, you've trained for that situation and you should be proficient at it. And you should be able to execute that single engine approach and landing. That's correct. Is there a scenario, Waldo, you can think of where you would make the decision to keep the engine running? How about if the weather was poor and there was the potential for either a missed approach or a go around? I think I would have still shut it down. If it's not making power, when you wanted some power, it would most likely puke then, and then you're really distracted. Yeah, that's, you make a really good point. So it's providing partial power, and the notion that you might keep it running so that if you got in a bind and really needed it, and you attempted to go for it, and then at that point, you know, the engine would very likely fail, or you at least, you wouldn't do it with a lot of confidence. You'd know that that was a potential. Yeah. Well, that's great, Waldo. I knew you'd have a, a point of view on it and a well-thought-out point of view. So uh, thanks for sharing your thoughts and, and your experience with us and our listeners for the There I Was podcast. Well, good. Good to talk to you. Well, some great things to think about, and that's why we do these podcasts. 
We appreciate the story and lessons learned from John, as well as the input from Doug and Waldo. Thanks for joining us. Alongside our producer, Tyler Pangborn, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.